Well, we turn back to uh, John, uh, the passage we read earlier, and specifically looking at the first 10 verses of John chapter 20. John chapter 20 then, uh, looking at those first 10 verses that we read there. And if you come back this evening, we'll then look at the next section from verse 11 onwards. So there's the trailer. John chapter 20, though. If you were one of the disciples in Jerusalem early on that first Easter morning as dawn was just breaking, I wonder how you would have been feeling. For several years, you'd have been living in the company of a most remarkable man. Jesus had uttered profound sayings. He performed miracles before your very eyes, He'd had perfect insight into the hearts of those round about him. Remember, there was a a woman in Samaria who, when she met him, said, Come, see a man who's told me all the things I ever did. This Jesus was compassionate and he was wise. He was humble and yet he spoke with authority. In him, there was absolutely no hint of selfishness or sin. And during those months and years, his disciples had come to realize that somehow or other, this Jesus was the promised Messiah, spoken of centuries beforehand by the prophets. The Lord Jesus Christ was indeed a remarkable man who had transformed their lives completely. But that's not all. For uh, less than a week previously, the disciples had witnessed a most remarkable uh, sight. The crowds welcoming Jesus coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And the crowds had fated him, hadn't they? Crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. But then had come betrayal. Arrest, midnight inquisitions. Jesus had been subject to beating and mocking. He'd been paraded by Pilate before a baying crowd and led away to die. Crucifixion was not for the squeamish. Jesus suffered the indignity of being stripped and then nails were driven through his hands and feet. Being crucified meant that he had to strain his body for each gasp of air, ultimately crying out, I thirst, shortly before he died. The one who had filled the disciples' lives was left in agony on the cross until the point at which he breathed his last Now, the bodies of those who were crucified would usually have been dumped in the Himmon Valley with the city rubbish. But we're told here in John 19 that Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus and Pilate gave it to him. And aided by Nicodemus, we're told that Joseph buried the body of Jesus in the manner of the Jews. While that might be a small dignity in death, 
the indisputable fact remained. This remarkable man, this king hailed by the crowds only a few days earlier, is now a cold corpse lying in a tomb. If then you were a disciple in Jerusalem, how would you have been feeling? Hope had been shattered. Dreams turned to disaster. Joy had been replaced with emptiness and despair. All those certainties which were associated with Jesus have gone. Who knows what the next day will bring? Reading on into chapter verse 19 of chapter 20, we find that the disciple for the disciples, fear is the overwhelming emotion. Fear, fear of the Jewish leaders, fear of the Romans, fear of the future. That's then the backdrop as we encounter Mary here in the first verse of John chapter 20, making her way back to the tomb where Jesus had been laid two days earlier. Indeed, the very darkness of that early morning reinforces the sense of coldness and emptiness as she sets out on that first Easter morning. If you look in uh, the other Gospels, you find a slightly different account. Uh, there's reference to other women being with Mary. John chooses not to uh, refer to them directly. But if we look on in verse 2 of this passage where uh, Mary gives her report of what she's found, she, she uses the, the, the term we, we do not know where they have laid him. So it's clear that Mary was with, with others. We read of Mary then coming to the tomb with these other women. And you remember that the burial on Friday evening had been hurried. It had to be completed before sundown, before the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. And although Jesus had been buried by Joseph and Nicodemus, wrapped in linen cloths and spices, for Mary and these other women, their grief is still raw. And as the sun set on Saturday evening, as the Shabbat, the Sabbath, came to an end, the women had gone out to buy spices, and so they came to the tomb early the next morning. And the Gospels, the other Gospels, make it clear that their purpose was to anoint the body of Jesus, to perform an act of respect to express their grief to the one whom they loved. Now, as we read the account here in, in John 20, there's no indication that Mary looked into the tomb as she approached it. Rather, from a distance, as it were, she sees the stone rolled away from the tomb in the early morning light. And that's sufficient for her to assume the worst Leaving the other women to investigate further, she runs to sound the alarm to Peter and John. And her news that the body of the Lord Jesus is no longer in the tomb is met by disbelief by most of the disciples. But as we have it recorded here in John's gospel, 
Peter and John set off to investigate, don't they, to run to the tomb. Well, at Easter, we often speak about an empty tomb. But as the passage recorded, as it's recorded for us here, we see that the tomb wasn't quite empty. For we read that in the tomb remained the grave clothes. And we'll consider what the disciples found in the tomb, these grave clothes, under three headings this morning. Firstly, the evidence of the grave clothes, then the effect of the grave clothes, and then lastly, the encouragement that comes from the grave clothes. Firstly, then, the evidence of the grave clothes. Let's look back at verses 4 to 7. Both of them, that's John and Peter, were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Our family are great fans of the TV series Death in Paradise. Apart from the quiet humor of the characters and the setting of an idyllic Caribbean island, the attraction is that each episode presents a seemingly insoluble conundrum. The conundrum is inevitably solved, the problem is inevitably solved, through some seemingly insignificant clue that's discovered at the scene of the crime. Well, we don't have a scene, a crime scene here in John chapter 20, but we do have what for the disciples seemed an insoluble conundrum. Only a couple of days earlier, remember, the disciple John, together with Mary Madeline and the other women, had seen Jesus crucified before their eyes. They'd seen the soldier pierce the side of the Lord Jesus to be sure that he was truly dead. And they had seen the body of the Lord Jesus Christ laid in the grave, closed by a stone which was rolled into place. Yet when John first arrives and looks into the tomb, there is no body He sees just the linen cloths lying there. And when Peter arrives shortly afterwards, he enters the tomb and he sees just the linen cloths lying there. If the body of Jesus wasn't there, what possible explanation could there be? When Mary had raised the alarm, she declared, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We're not told who she was thinking of at that time when she said they. One suspects she might have been thinking of the Jewish leaders or Roman soldiers who'd conspired to bring about the death of her Lord. Now, there are all number of books 
which examine uh, the circumstances of the resurrection. They consider the objections raised, examine hypothetical explanations, and interrogate the motives of those involved. You can read them if you want to and see if you agree with their conclusion that the resurrection must be true. If we turn to scripture, though, there are nine occasions recorded when Jesus appears to his disciples. And indeed, in in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentions one occasion when there were 500 witnesses to the risen Christ all at one time. And Paul says to his readers there in 1 Corinthians 15, if you don't believe me, go and talk to them. But like the insignificant clue in an episode of Death in Paradise, we're told a little detail here in these verses, which also points us to the truth. For when Peter and John reach the tomb, they both see the linen cloths lying there. If anyone had taken the body of Jesus, why would they have spent time unwinding the linen cloths before removing a naked corpse? Who'd have gone to the bother of removing the grave clothes and leaving them there while taking a body off into the night? But there's more. For in these verses, we're told that Peter and John saw the linen cloths lying there, but nothing else. Perhaps you've got an impression of the grave clothes unwound from the body and lying in a heap. Or perhaps you imagine that they've been folded up neatly, like the face cloth that Peter describes seeing as well. While either of those may be true, uh, some have suggested another possibility. You, you remember that uh, Joseph and Nicodemus had buried Jesus after the manner of the Jews. And that meant that spices had been interwoven into the linen cloths as they were wrapped around the body. And we're told that they had brought 75 pounds of spice. That's the equivalent of 30 bags of sugar. Well, that's a lot of spice not to be lying around, is it? If there's just the linen cloths recorded as being there. Is it not possible the grave clothes were just literally lying there where Jesus had been laid? Last year, we were burgled. And the worst thing about it wasn't so much what was taken, but the mess that the burglars made. You see, we discovered a truth. Burglars don't tidy up when they finished. They didn't sweep up the glass that they'd broken uh, when they came through the window. They didn't wipe their feet on the mat before coming into the house. Burglars, we found. Leave a mess because they're in a hurry. And so you see the grave clothes which Peter and John saw there. Do not speak of a frantic raid on the grave, whether by Jewish leaders or Roman soldiers or grave robbers or Jesus' distraught disciples. Whether the clothes were in a pile, neatly folded, or still where Jesus lay, the gravestone, the grave clothes do not speak of hurry or haste or fear. 
Rather, the grave clothes speak of a calm but wonderfully miraculous event whereby the Lord Jesus Christ leaves the grave clothes behind as he rises on Easter morning. Well, if that's the evidence of the grave clothes, we see also the effect of the grave clothes. And we see that in verses 5 to 9. And stooping to look in, he, uh, that's Peter, saw the linen, sorry, John saw the linen cloths there, lying there, and he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. There's a slight weakness in our English translation here. We read in verse 5 that John looked in and saw the linen cloths there. Now, the Greek word for saw there conveys the idea of noticing something or noting it in passing. So I might say that this morning when I came into church, I saw the scaffolding here and I saw that the building work was still going on. I came in, I saw it, and I noted it. And this seems to be the idea here in verse 5. John stoops down, he looks into the tomb, and he sees the grave clothes lying there. He notes it, but nothing more. But when Peter goes into the tomb and he sees the linen cloths, a different Greek word is used, even though our English Bible uses the same word, saw. And the Greek word conveys the idea of observing carefully and then turning it over in the mind, considering what is seen. It's the Greek root from which we get the English words theory and theorize. So you see, when Peter went into the tomb, he didn't just note in passing that the grave clothes were there, he looked around and he began to turn it over in his mind and consider what it all might mean. What was it then that Peter might have considered as he turned it over in his mind? As Peter went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths there and the face cloth over on one side, do you not think it would have begun to ring a bell, strike a chord? Wouldn't his mind have gone back to a few months earlier at the events at Bethany, which we read about in John chapter 11? As he saw the grave clothes there, wouldn't he have thought about another set of grave clothes that he'd seen recently? As he saw the face cloth, would he not have thought about another face cloth that he'd seen on a man that had been taken from the face and then put on one side? Wouldn't Peter have begun to think about Lazarus, the one whom Jesus had raised from the dead only a short time previously? And then as he considered the grave clothes there in the tomb, 
as he thought of the grave clothes that Lazarus had been loosed from. I wonder if he began to recall the words that Jesus had said then. Remember what Jesus said? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But then we're told in verse 8 that John followed Peter into the tomb and he also saw. But when John tells us that he sees, he uses yet another Greek word. This time it's a word which conveys the idea not only of seeing, but also understanding what you are seeing, of being sure about what you can see with your own eyes. Our chapter started out in the darkness and coldness of the early morning. But as the morning progresses, more and more light is coming into the tomb. The sun is climbing in the sky. More light is coming physically into the tomb. But isn't it wonderful that here we see more light is coming in in the metaphorical sense. First John notes, then Peter begins to consider what he's seeing. And now John says, I understand what I see. What was it that John began to understand as he looked at the grave clothes? Well, the clue may be in verse 9. For there we read, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now again, there's a slight weakness in our English translation here, which doesn't do justice to the thought. For the Greek conveys the idea that Peter and John hadn't understood what the scriptures had to say about Jesus' writing but also that this lack of understanding has now come to an end. So as he looks at the grave clothes, John is saying, I'm beginning to understand that the scriptures had foretold these events. I didn't understand before, but now I do. John, you remember, was the disciple, the disciple, who had not run away. When Jesus was arrested, he'd been there observing the events as Jesus was crucified. Is it possible now that he began to think about the scriptures that he had known all his life and previously had not made the connection? Is it possible that he now thought about Psalm 22 which we were looking at on Wednesday evening in the prayer meeting, does he now realize that the events of the crucifixion had been predicted in that psalm? The mocking crowds, the pierced hands and feet, the agony and thirst of Jesus, and the soldiers casting lots for his clothes. Or did did, uh, John see the grave clothes and then begin to understand that Isaiah 53 was speaking of Jesus when it recounts he poured out his soul to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now as John looks at the grave clothes, maybe he remembered Psalm 16, the psalm we've just sung. Does he begin to understand that in verse 10, it was speaking of Jesus when it said, you do not abandon my soul to Shoal or let your Holy One see corruption. Or whatever scriptures John was thinking of, we read that John sees the grave clothes and he understands what they mean. He understands that it was God's purpose that the Lord Jesus Christ should die and that in doing so, he had died in the place of his people. John understands that Jesus could never remain in the grave. Looking at the grave clothes, he understands that as God, the Lord Jesus, had taken his life up, life up again and risen again. But we're also told that John didn't just understand this, for then he believed. You see, when John saw the grave clothes, he didn't just note it in passing. He didn't just theorize about it. But we are told that he understood what was in front of him and he cast himself on this truth with all his heart. It was a truth which indeed he would cling to, a truth which would transform his life and a truth which he would live and die by. I wonder if you notice the comment in John's narrative, people like to pick up on it, don't they? That it was John who reached the tomb first. John is far too modest to speak of himself by name, of course, but he speaks in code. He talks of the other disciple. He tells us in verse 4 that he reached the tomb first, and he reminds us again in verse 8. You know, I... I wonder if this is a parody somehow or other of what's going on spiritually. John seems to get there first, doesn't he? Peter is still theorizing, thinking about it, turning it over in his mind. But John now understands and he believes. But that raises a most important question, doesn't it? Friends, isn't this a question which each of us needs to think about seriously? And each one of us needs to answer. Where are you at the tomb this morning? Are you like John? Are you outside just noting that Easter is happening? Are you here this morning just giving a nod to the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, friends, are you like Peter? Are you beginning to think about it a bit more deeply? Are you convinced by the evidence, but you're considering it, theorizing about it? Haven't yet worked out what a difference it makes to your life? Or are you like John? Have you seen and understood and believed well, we pray that this morning the evidence of the grave clothes will be a truth you don't only understand, but also one that you take to heart and live by.
And that brings us, lastly then, we've seen the evidence of the grave clothes, the effect of the grave clothes, and now we just consider briefly the encouragement that comes from the grave clothes. For we read in verse 10, the disciples went back to their own homes. Well, that speaks of uh, disciples going to their own homes. You'll remember that the disciples were not from Jerusalem. Their homes were in Galilee, much further north. And they traveled with Jesus to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover along, or, along with hundreds of other Jews. And the city was packed, wasn't it? And the disciples would have been staying in lodgings. They'd have been using the the first century equivalent of Airbnb, if you like. So what happened when the disciples went back to their homes, to these temporary lodgings in Jerusalem? Well, what's important is not so much where they were staying, but who was there? For back in John 19, 27, we read that just as the Lord Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, Jesus entrusted his mother into the care of John. And it says, from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Can you imagine the conversation that took place when John returned and met Mary, the mother of Jesus? As John shared the news of the grave clothes in the tomb, wouldn't Mary's tears of grief have been given, be, be given cause to cease? As John shared the truth that he had come to understand, Would not that sense of emptiness and despair that had gripped Mary begun to heal? Wouldn't Jesus' mother, wouldn't she have found her darkness beginning to turn to light? Friends, some in our congregation have had to face the death of a family or loved ones even in the past few weeks. And their grief is real. We grieve with them. But for those who die in Christ, there is a sure hope based on the irrefutable evidence that's recorded here in the scriptures for us. John saw the grave clothes and he believed. And he goes on to tell us in John 20, 31, that by believing, we too may have life in his name. So the evidence of the grave clothes gives us hope, just as it gave Mary hope. The grave clothes give us reason not to be full of emptiness and despair. The grave clothes point us to the risen Christ. And if we and our loved ones believe in him, the scripture tells us, John tells us, that we too will rise to eternal life to be united with him. But that's not all, for in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle talks about the resurrection. And he tells us that when we are raised like Christ, we will have new bodies like Christ. 
Listen to what Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul tells us that in this life, we have bodies which bear the marks of the man of dust, which means Adam. We have human bodies. Our bodies get sick. They become deformed. They decay. And ultimately, they fail. But says Paul, your new bodies will be like the man of heaven. In other words, like Jesus. And friends, isn't that encouraging as we face particular challenges in life? Some of you are going through hard seasons at the moment, possibly harder than we can fully appreciate. And we feel for you in your trials. But for those who bear these burdens, the grave clothes remind us that one day our old failing and struggling bodies will be taken away and then we will have new bodies made in the image of our saviour. Last week I was at the funeral of a lady for whom life had been particularly hard. She'd been brought up in an institution from her early teens. She had special needs and she had physical challenges as well. But this young lady had heard the gospel as a child and she understood that Christ had died on the cross for sinners and had risen again. And in her own simple way, she had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we were reminded at the funeral that notwithstanding all her challenges in this life, and they were many, she would receive a new body in eternity. And her new body would be perfect, reflecting the image of the risen Lord Jesus as she delighted in the presence of her Saviour. So friends, isn't that worth reflecting on this Easter? The grave clothes were left lying there in the tomb. Evidence that Christ has risen. And what a wonderful sign to point us to our risen saviour in the hope that we, the hope that we have if we believe on him, that when the time comes, we will be raised with him in new bodies, to be in his presence forevermore. Let's pray to God. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, for your word reveals to us truth. And we, Lord, we thank you for the truth of the resurrection, that the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life And he raised it up again. And Father, we thank you for the hope that that gives us. That the victory of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross at Calvary is indeed a sure victory. Evidenced by the resurrection and ascension of our saviour.
the Lord Jesus. May we reflect on that and draw strength from that. And may our hearts indeed be filled with joy. And we give you thanks, Lord, for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.